The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash DMP 860. Downloadable practice aids are also available. First, I'm going to give you an overview of hypersinophilic syndrome. Hypersinophilic syndromes are a spectrum of presentations. There is no universally accepted definition of HES. However, they're broadly defined as patients who experience blood eosinophilia greater than 1500 per microliter on two different occasions, as well as marked tissue involvement with eosinophils. In general, evidence of end organ involvement is usually necessary to make the diagnosis, and patients typically present with a variety of clinical manifestations, and we'll discuss these in more detail. It bears mention that elevated eosinophils by themselves can present similarly to hyperosinophilic syndromes. However, in general, it requires a diagnosis uh, that excludes certain things such as infections, malignancies, or other drug reactions that may cause a reactive eosinophilia. There are certain common presentations of hyperosinophilic syndrome that are typically grouped by organ system. In one of the largest retrospective studies of hyperosinophilic syndrome involving 188 patients, the initial clinical manifestations of HES were explored. In that study, they found that the skin uh, was the most involved organ system um, affected in 38% of patients. Um, following that, patients had a variety of pulmonary manifestations ranging from asthma, um, cough or dyspnea, and pulmonary infiltrates. The gastrointestinal tract is often involved in patients, um, and patients can ex experience either nonspecific symptoms such as abdominal pain, vomiting, diarrhea, or they can actually have eosinophils involved in the GI tract um, that are demonstrated by further testing. The musculoskeletal system is sometimes involved, and oftentimes patients will have constitutional symptoms such as fatigue um, or other nonspecific symptoms associated with their disease. Uh, cardiac involvement can be present in up to 6% of patients that were demonstrated in this study, um, and that is always important to be on the lookout for. Because so many organs can be involved, it's important to involve the appropriate specialist in the care of these patients. So oftentimes an allergist immunologist is, is contacted at the outset because of the elevated peripheral eosinophilia. However, many other specialists may first encounter a patient um, depending on the organ system that's involved. Ultimately, many physicians may play a role in the care of patients with HES, such as endocrinologists to manage uh, the side effects of particular therapies, such as glucocorticoids, or rheumatologists and hematologists to manage and monitor therapies. So now we're gonna walk through the general evaluation of patients with hyperosinophilic syndrome according to the type of symptoms that they might present with or the end organ manifestations and complications that might occur. In general, a CBC with differential is, is often used to verify the elevated eosinophil count. Um, and sometimes a peripheral smear might be necessary to look for any other uh, abnormalities that might be present in the peripheral blood. Patients oftentimes have flow cytometry to look at the various subsets of T cells that are present, um, and a serum tryptase and B12 are needed to look for myeloid conditions. 
If a patient has a typical exposure history or travel to particular areas, they might need serologies for parasites or stool for ovarian parasites. And sometimes if a patient is suspected to have a vasculitis, uh, testing such as ANA or ANCAs might be required, as well as uh, serum inflammatory markers like ESR and CRP. If a patient has um, a particular potential to have experienced HIV, HIV testing is important. If a patient is suspected uh, to have a primary immune deficiency or another um, type of immune dysfunction, uh, further testing in those areas may be needed. So to screen for end organ involvement, one might need to uh, pursue further testing depending on the symptoms that a patient has. A thorough history is needed just to understand the extent of the symptoms that may be involved. So delving a little bit further into the pulmonary involvement, the differential diagnosis of peripheral eosinophilia is fairly broad, but in particular pulmonary eosinophilia in HES can be confused with other eosinophilic pulmonary presentations such as AEP, CEP, or EGPA. Looking at the imaging, uh, there are particular features that can distinguish some of the pulmonary syndromes. So in AEP, typically the involvement is more diffuse, whereas in CEP it's more peripheral uh, patchy infiltrates. EGPA and HES are actually fairly um, similar in terms of the patchy involvement that can occur in various parts of the lung. Um, there are no particular historical features that can really distinguish between EGPA and HES. They can both have allergic features um, and typically there's not a um, preceding smoking history. Um, however, if there are features of vasculitis, for example, pulmonary hemorrhage, that might be more consistent with an EGPA picture. Um, however, most patients do present with pulmonary uh, eosinophilia and, and similar symptoms to HES. Uh, both HES and EGPA can have neurologic involvement um, as well as cardiac involvement, so those are not really good distinguishing features. So typically, um, one treats them actually very much the same in terms of the, the starting therapies with glucocorticoids. However, depending on the severity of each, um, further therapies may be needed, and sometimes the therapies that are used are a little bit different in EGPA as compared to HES. Now let's take a closer look at how eosinophils are produced, activated, and migrate to tissues. Eosinophils are a type of white blood cell with multifunctional roles in humans, including protection from parasitic infections, modulating both innate and adaptive immune responses, releasing immunoregulatory cytokines and signaling molecules, and maintaining tissue homeostasis. Eosinophils are characterized by bilobed nuclei and red stained cytoplasmic secretory granules that give them their bright pink color when stained with eosin. Eosinophil granule proteins can be cytotoxic when released by eosinophils. Activated eosinophils can cause pathology by a few different mechanisms. Because eosinophils contain cytotoxic granules, chemokines, and cytokines, they can directly cause cytotoxic effects through degranulation. They also have the ability to recruit and activate other inflammatory cells through the release of pro-inflammatory mediators. In activated states, Eosinophils can play a role in tissue damage contributing to fibrogenesis, formation of thrombi, vasculitis, and inflammation. Eosinophils mature in the bone marrow and migrate to tissues under the direction of chemokines. Eosinophils can be activated by many cytokines, 
but one of the most important cytokines for their activation, development, and survival is IL-5. IL-33 aids in this function as well. Eosinophil differentiation, expansion, survival, and activation is mediated by IL-5. Eotaxin is a key chemokine that is involved in eosinophil recruitment. Other non-chemokine factors such as complement and other immune cells such as lymphocytes, mast cells, and other eosinophils may play a role in elaborating chemokines and cytokines that influence eosinophils. Eosinophils are tissue-dwelling cells with a tissue-to-blood ratio of about 100 to 1. Eosinophils are often found in epithelial and endothelial surfaces, such as the airways or gastrointestinal tract. After developing and expanding in the bone marrow, they are believed to be present in the peripheral blood compartment for a short time before they transmigrate to tissues either under homeostatic conditions or inflammatory settings. Once they get to the tissues, the half-life tends to be a lot longer, between 1 and 7 days, depending on whether or not they have other supporting cytokines in the milieu. Certain chemokines, especially eotaxin, influence this migration. So, the pathogenesis of HES is thought to be caused by overproduction of eosinophils. Mediator release from eosinophils, such as elaboration of eosinophil granule proteins or other products such as cytokines, and eosinophils themselves may play a role in the end organ damage uh, experienced by patients with HES. There's some evidence that other cells, such as T cells or mast cells, may play a role in eosinophilic conditions, and the crosstalk between these cells and eosinophils is an active area of study. Now let's talk about some of the subtypes of HES. There are several subtypes of HES, including myeloid HES, lymphoid HES, overlap HES where the features may be very similar to another defined condition such as EGPA or eosinophilic gastrointestinal disease. Associated HES is typically in the context of another condition such as a malignancy with associated eosinophilia that can manifest similarly to HES. There is an autosomal dominant form of eosinophilia called familial HES, which is present in two described families so far. And finally, the most common form of HES is idiopathic, where the underlying pathogenesis is not really known. Um, however, the symptoms may overlap with some of the other HESs. Two of the most well-characterized HESs are the myeloid and lymphoid types, and we'll talk about these further. So for myeloid HES, these are typically um, presenting with more severe manifestations, although patients can be asymptomatic really at, the, at first presentation. The serum abnormalities that have um, characteristically been associated with uh, myeloid HES include an elevated tryptase or an elevated B12. Patients don't have to have both, sometimes they only have one. Other cellular abnormalities include thrombocytopenia, anemia, elevated LDH, or hypercellular marrow, um, or dysplastic eosinophils and myeloid precursors that can be found in the peripheral blood. These patients should have a bone marrow biopsy um, with cytogenetics and a bone marrow aspirate, as previously mentioned, and certain molecular testing should be sent for further evaluation. And these include PDGFR-A, 
PDGFRB rearrangements, JAK2 mutations, including um, the PCM-JAK1 translocation, uh, as well as uh, other exons that may be present in hyperosinophilic syndrome. FGFR1 has also been associated with eosinophilia. The clinical findings um, in these patients may include, as I mentioned, asymptomatic presentation, or they may actually present with splenomegaly, hepatomegaly, um, or other um, mucosal involvement, such as mucosal ulceration um, of uh, the mouth or lips and sometimes the genitalia. The World Health Organization has a classification for myeloid neoplasms with eosinophilia and they do recommend the um, testing of those molecular abnormalities that I just mentioned, um, in particular because some of these um, can be targeted with other therapies such as imatinib um, and are not typically treated with eosinophil-depleting medications. We'll talk about treatment in a moment. So moving to lymphoid HES. These are characterized by an elevation in a phenotypically abnormal uh, T-cell population. These cells can be clonal um, by uh, PCR testing or by V-beta rearrangement. And when these cells have been looked at in vitro, they've been found to secrete eosinophil-promoting cytokines such as IL-4, IL-5, or IL-13. These patients often present with skin and soft tissue manifestations. They can have angioedema, and they often have an elevated uh, serum IgE. The diagnosis is made um, by the clinical features, um, typically skin involvement, sometimes lymph node involvement, as well as this peripheral blood uh, flow cytometry showing an aberrant T-cell phenotype or by T-cell receptor rearrangement um, using PCR. The treatment of lymphoid HES uh, includes glucocorticoids, um, historically interferon alpha has been used, um, and other immunosuppressive agents and biologics have also been used in lymphoid HES. Regardless of the subtype of HES, the burden of, of the symptoms and the disease can be quite striking. HES is a rare disorder, and as such, the data on its bur burden are limited. However, there's no doubt that it has a significant impact on patients' lives. As HES progresses, the proportion of patients experiencing serious complications can increase, and that was shown in that retrospective study that I discussed earlier. Um, when, the, when the disease of HES is not treated or is inadequately treated, uh, the symptoms and the burden can increase. In a retrospective cohort of patients with HES followed over time, about 20% of patients with HES eventually experienced either cardiac involvement, such as congestive heart failure or thromboembolic events. Some of these can be irreversible um, and are, have historically been the cause of the morbidity and mortality experienced by uh, patients with HES. Neurologic complications were also common, and these often included cerebrovascular disease or peripheral neuropathy. Owing to the variability of the disease in patients with HES, the various ways that it can present or manifest in each patient is very variable. On that note, let's hear from Tina, a patient with HES who will share her story about being diagnosed and living with the disease. My first symptoms of HES were 
GI problems where I would have stomach cramps, cramps that would be so severe I'd be bellied over. Also had constant sinus infections. Um, the day-to-day life was fatigue. Um, I would have uh, weakness, uh, pain in my legs. Um, yeah, it was about when I was about 24 years old is when all of this started. Um, it's affected my life in a way where it's affected every aspect of my life. And it, um, it has made it very difficult to do some of the most basic things, such as brushing my teeth and brushing my hair um, at times whenever I would um, have my flare-ups. And it would definitely be difficult to, for me to continue throughout the day. HES manifested in my body at first with my um, GI tract, with my intestines. After I had a colonoscopy, they found three layers of my intestines had eosinophils in it. And about a year or two after that, they found them in my esophagus. So it ended up in my entire GI tract. Once that um, started, things started going downhill from there. Um, I started having breathing issues and they thought it was asthma and, um, but it was not, I was going through heart failure and, um, at this point it has affected my heart, my lungs, my entire GI tract. Um, I have muscle pain all the time, uh, fatigue, chronic fatigue. That's probably the hardest. Uh, yes. I was hospitalized multiple times um, for pneumonia, stomach cramps, and stomach pain. Um, I would have uh, severe sinus infections that would not go away. Uh, the hospitalizations um, lasted uh, maybe two times per year. I was in the hospital for a good week or two um, with the doctors trying to help me um, helped me get better, but they could not find anything that was wrong except for my high, high eosinophils. My healthcare providers tried very hard through trial and error to find out what was causing my stomach issues in the beginning. The it was basically going through blood work and testing and CT scans. And the only abnormal test they found was that there were high eosinophils in my white blood cell count. Um, it took about seven to eight years until I was officially diagnosed with HES. HES has affected every aspect of my life from my career when I would, I was a dancer and I had to take a big step back uh, from my career, from my passion, um, due to my stomach cramps and what was going on with my body with the fatigue. And I had to find a new, a new norm for me, uh, which took a long time. Um, it affected my, my kids, my children were young, when this started, I had it before they were born, and um, I just wanted to see them grow up, and I could not play with them like other mothers could play with them. 
Um, I, I didn't have the strength or the energy to play with them or to even play a card game with them. Um, so that affected my home life. My social life, I was afraid that I would start feeling bad when I was outside of the house. So I didn't go out often. And so when it comes to like having a social life, I still don't have much of a social life out of that fear of having the pain um, come back and not knowing when that will be. Um, the first treatments that they tried uh, did help. Um, it helped with the chronic fatigue, the pain, um, gave me more energy, and it worked really well. The downfall was weight gain, um, getting angry, uh, eating a lot. Um, I went to a second treatment, and that second treatment, um, I still had the extreme fatigue, but it was more successful at keeping my eosinophils down and very low. Um, I was in a test study um, for people with hyper eosinophilia syndrome, and that was, at that point, my only option. And it was either continue on the medication I was given or try something that maybe work even better. And in the test study, I've been test study for 16 years, and I'm excited that it finally got approved by FDA. It has helped me tremendously um, to get back some of my life that I was missing um, from having HES. Um, Every HES patient is extremely different with their symptoms, with how they're perceiving life with HES, and they need guidance. Um, part of the issue with HES is getting to that diagnosis. So anyone that has HES or, or high eosinophils on a regular basis, there should be more work done to find out the source and the reason that their eosinophils are high and not to have any assumption that it may be allergies or a parasite, but eliminate those items, those objects, so that you can get to the real source, um, which a lot of times I think H, it, it would be HES. Um, treating patients with HES is very um, emotional for them. Um, their feelings uh, may be perceived as too anxious, too uh, teary-eyed, like crying. But after so much time of trying to deal with this um, chronic illness, it can definitely take a toll on us. And um, that, that is part of, to me, one of the symptoms of living with a chronic illness and with HES having physicians and care um, healthcare providers take the initiative to comfort them and let, show them the path, guide them the path on how to help them and how to live with life with HES. As you've just heard, HES can sometimes take a long time to diagnose because of the varied symptoms. The delay in diagnosis can take a significant toll on patients when it occurs. So I think it's really important that the diagnosis is made appropriately. 
Now let's move on to treatment options to manage this disease. Prednisone has historically been first line in terms of treatment for HES. There are other therapies that have been used, such as immunosuppressive agents for the treatment of HES historically. One of those is interferon. Interferon is uh, considered off-label use for lymphoid and myeloid variants and sometimes is used in idiopathic hypersinophilic syndrome. Unfortunately, interferon can be associated with a lot of um, untoward side effects um, and toxicity that oftentimes results in its discontinuation. It does require close monitoring, um, both from a lab parameter perspective, as well as for uh, psychiatric complications with its use. Um, hydroxyurea has also been used in hyperacinophilic syndrome. Um, it's also considered off-label use for idiopathic HES. Um, however, similar to interferon, higher doses um, and long-term use often result in hematologic side effects or other symptoms that result in its discontinuation. It's often used in, in conjunction with other therapies uh, for control of HES. The other options for HES include other immunosuppressive agents. Um, and these are sometimes considered when a patient is refractory or intolerant of the other uh, typical therapies for HES. Uh, these might include mycophenolate, methotrexate, or cyclosporin, and each of these have their own unique adverse event profiles um, and require shared decision-making and appropriate monitoring by an experienced physician. So now let's cover some of the biologic therapies that are used for hyperacinophilic syndrome. Uh, the most common of these is the IL-5 axis therapies for HES. So the first of these is mepolizumab, um, which works by binding IL-5 uh, and preventing the production and uh, activation of eosinophils. The current indications are for eosinophilic asthma, for EGPA, and hypereosinophilic syndrome, um, and the dose varies depending on the indication. Um, they're also now uh, being used for nasal polyposis too. Benralizumab, on the other hand, is an IL-5 receptor um, agent, and it functions by causing antibody-dependent cell cytotoxicity of eosinophils. It is indicated for severe asthma, and a phase two study for hyperosinophilic syndrome showed good results. A current phase three study is ongoing for hyperosinophilic syndrome. It is also dosed subcutaneously at 30 milligrams every four weeks for the first three months, uh, followed by every other month for asthma, and the dose for HES is monthly. The third agent in the IL-5 axis of medications is reslizumab. This also inhibits eosinophil proliferation by binding IL-5, and it's indicated for eosinophilic asthma. Um, this is uh, given intravenously, which is a little bit different than the other medications that are given subcutaneously. Other monoclonal antibodies can be used in eosinophilic disorders. For example, omelizumab um, decreases free IgE and protect, prevents IgE from cross-linking and degranulating mast cells and basophils. It's indicated for allergic asthma, nasal polyps, and idiopathic urticaria. And although it's not commonly used for hyperosinophilic syndrome, there are case reports and series where it's been used as add-on therapy. Lirantelumab depletes eosinophils and inhibits mast cells. Although it currently has no indications, a phase two study looking at it in eosinophilic gastritis and duodenitis was very positive.
in phase three studies um, that are ongoing, uh, depletion of blood eosinophilia has been shown. It is also dosed intravenously. There are other medications that have been looked at in a variety of eosinophilic conditions, including small molecule therapies. So one of these is a kinase inhibitor called ruxolitinib, which inhibits JAKSTAT signaling and is indicated for myelofibrosis. A phase two study is ongoing for hypersinophilic syndrome and it's also dosed orally. Another small molecule agent called dexpramipaxol um, works through an unknown mechanism. It currently has no indications, uh, but a pilot study was positive for hypersinophilic syndrome and the phase two um, results for eosinophilic asthma were promising. This is also an oral agent. So now let's talk about mepolizumab in patients with ATS. This medication has been studied since the original trials in 2005 and 2006 using an intravenous format. However, a more recent mepolizumab trial was conducted in patients with hypereosinophilic syndrome. In this study, 108 participants with PDGFRA negative hypereosinophilic syndrome who had eosinophil counts greater than 1,000 and had experienced more than two flares in the past year were enrolled. The primary endpoint was the proportion of patients with a flare during the study. Those patients receiving mepolizumab had significantly decreased risk for flares, 56% reduced compared to those who received placebo. There was a 50% reduction in proportion of participants who experienced a flare or withdrew from the study. 66% had a reduction in the risk of a flare. And there was a 66% reduction in the annualized flare rate compared to prior to the study. And notably, there were similar proportions of on-treatment adverse events in both the mepolizumab and the placebo arm. What was notable in that study was that fatigue severity was also improved at week 32 compared to placebo. The blood eosinophil count decreased 92% from baseline compared with placebo. So let's talk about benolizumab in patients with HES. As described, the phase two study that was performed in patients was a placebo-controlled, double-blind um, study looking at benolizumab um, in patients with hypersinophilic syndrome. In that study, the absolute eosinophil count declined significantly in those patients that received benolizumab as compared to those with placebo. This study enrolled 20 symptomatic participants with PDGFRA negative hypersinophilic syndrome and during the open label period, 89% of participants had clinical and hematologic responses. Now let's talk about common adverse events in the IL-5 therapies. Interestingly, both with the anti-IL-5 therapies and the anti-IL-5 receptor therapies, not that many significant side effects have occurred. The common adverse events include nasopharyngitis, injection site reactions, headaches, and upper respiratory tract infections. Serious adverse events are very rare um, and have included asthma worsening, um, rare anaphylactic reactions, and pneumonia. In summary, the treatment of HES has evolved over time. Historically, glucocorticoids have been used, and this is still recommended for those patients who have life-threatening symptoms at presentation. The treatments can be individualized by HES subtype, um, and one might consider biologic or other therapies for patients to reduce the flares if they're intolerant of standard therapies. So to summarize, those patients with lymphoid HES often are treated with glucocorticoids, 
immune suppression, interferon alpha, and more commonly now in the context of clinical trials, some biologic therapies. Those patients with idiopathic hypersinophilic syndrome have, again, traditionally been treated with glucocorticoids. Um, and similarly with interferon and hydroxyurea, um, but oftentimes don't require immunosuppressive therapies because they are more responsive to glucocorticoids. Those patients with overlap hypersinophilic syndrome might qualify for an FDA-approved indication of um, mepolizumab, for example, in patients with eGPA. And what's most important is that recognizing myeloid disease is necessary to be able to give a targeted therapy for HES. So patients with PDGFRA and PDGFRA-B disease respond remarkably to imatinib, and that is oftentimes the first-line therapy. Um, and so a prompt diagnosis is important. Thank you very much for joining us today. I hope you found this activity useful and that it informs your future practice. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash DMP 860. This educational activity is supported by an educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline.